And then so when we built the app, we realized like, you know, we need to figure out a way to make people download this. I don't know why I thought about this back then, but I was like, let's make this into like a trading app that James Bond would have in his pocket or something like that. I, I'm usually the person that like, you know what, when we have like get a new toy, you know, I'd, I'd like to break it apart and actually try to put it together. You know, so I, I like tinkering and I'm curious that way. You know, today I look at myself like, you know, Ronald, you know, child of God. And then really that's it. That's probably the most important thing for me. Hi, I'm Amanda Kua, and this is One More Scoop. Here, we're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives, and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Today, I'm speaking with Ronald Ishaf. He's a co-founder and CEO of Hacktivate, a coding bootcamp that teaches Indonesians how to code and helps them get hired as web developers. He's been involved in the Indonesian tech scene since 2008 as a founder and CTO of multiple startups, from an app for BlackBerry phones, yes, BlackBerry, to where he is today with Hacktivate. Hi, Ron. So nice to, to speak with you today. Hi, Amanda. So I was super curious to get to speak with you because you've been involved in Indonesia's startup scene for such a long time and it's much earlier stages and now the sort of post-pandemic stage. So I'm sure there's been a lot of interesting experiences that you've had throughout all those years. But I think the one question I actually wanted to ask you the most was what were the experiences, I guess, in your early life that sort of made you go into the entrepreneurial journey. I think, you know, early in your career, you probably never thought about that. But I guess looking back, what do you think influenced you to, to take this path? Yeah, you know, I, I, I didn't know I would end up here. But I knew as, as a kid uh, growing up that I'd like to tinker a lot. You know, I, I'm usually the person that like, you know what, when we have like get a new toy, you know, I'd, I'd like to break it apart and actually try to put it together. You know, so I, I like tinkering and I'm curious that way. You know, but everything after that sort of happened almost accidentally, right? I uh, really, you know, th there was a time when I was a kid that, you know, I would try to set up like a little stationary shop uh, inside my room and only have my parents buy things, right? You know, really, really <laughs> just small things like that. I think in college is really when I still started to get the entrepreneurial bug. But, you know, maybe, maybe to, to maybe step a, take a step back as well. My, my, both my parents are entrepreneurs. So my, my, my mother uh, runs her own business. My dad runs his own business. So growing up, I've sort of seen, you know, two entrepreneurs going back and forth, seeing their own struggles as well, and sort of understanding what things are going on. There are dinner table talks. Are, a lot of times are about uh, business as well. So I've gotten exposure that way. Sometimes I don't understand a thing, a single thing that they're talking about. Uh, but then, you know, to be able to relate with them, you know, over time, I, I sort of understood, uh, got to understand, you know, what are their concerns and things like that. But really for me, it started in college. Uh, and so there was a time in, I guess, like in the mid 2000s, maybe 2005-ish, uh, where Nintendo DS, you know, that, that portable gaming right. console was launching. And then so I had an idea of like, what if, you know, I can get as many of these and start to sell it on eBay. 
right? And at that time, you know, I don't think scalping was overly big in the U.S. as well. And then, so I was able to go in every store, put a different, a uh, bunch of different names to get multiple devices, have my friends, uh, you know, pick up devices and tell them like, look, I'll help you sell it, right? And, right. you know, around that season, I had sold like, I think over 80 Nintendos. And then basically all the money I'd get, I'd, you know, pour it back in. And then I had the record of the highest price Nintendo DS sold on eBay. Uh, at, at that year when they launched it, I sold it like four days before Christmas. Uh, something like that, and it was just an insane. You know, it was it was a it was a big rush. And for me, after that, I was like, "All right, I'm set. I know I want to do something like this in the future." So it started there. So you had a Nintendo sort of agent network selling, buying and selling all these Nintendo devices. Absolutely, and I thought there was nothing to lose, <laughs> right? I mean, like there was a point where I, I remember, like we had bought this thing or Halo, uh, the the video game Halo, right? And then. I had like, I think 20 units of it at one point, just from all my friends and it didn't sell. But then the crazy part is in the US, you can just, you know, return things within 30 days. So once we, once we knew that this isn't selling, we just like went back to the store and said, sorry, I think we've got to return everything. And then, oh, you and then you know, Nintendo. Yeah. So for the Nintendo, it worked, right? For the Halo stuff, yeah. it didn't work. Oh, and, and so, so it was kind of like a no risk thing for me. Like if it didn't work, we could just return it, right? So <laughs> it was just a cool, fun learning experience for me. And yeah, it just started from there and it just kept growing. Did you do this like throughout the year as a student or would you only do this during the break and then on and off? Like when did you start and when did you stop? <laughs> uh, so I, I did this during, specifically during Christmas time because I had figured that, you know, a lot of parents... Um, you know, might have wanted to get this for their kids because I've been that kid in the past where like I wanted to have a Nintendo and during Christmas time you couldn't get it because it was just sold out. Right. right. So I figured that there must be other parents going through this as well, right? And so I figured around that time, you know, to just give it a shot, try it over Christmas, it worked really well. And then after that, you know, I'd stop right after New Year's. I, I didn't keep going, but I knew I had it in the back of my head. I didn't keep going. Yeah, like if we could, if there's another, you know, next Christmas, I'll do something similar. And then by next Christmas, they actually added all these restrictions. I can't buy more than one. And all these oh. things trick your ID. <laughs> so like, all right, that business is done for. So we can't do that anymore. Did you end up starting another one the next Christmas? Or? No, I tried to do other things. But then I quickly realized like, you know, there might, you know. But at that point, I decided to like learn more about being an entrepreneur. You know, it's not all about flipping. Right. Uh, right. There's so many other parts of it. So, you know, I just, it just started this whole journey of trying to figure out what it looks like to even build a team and all that, you know, and I started actually my first ever startup also in college, which, which sort of is kind of like my first big failure as well. So I started a, um, a college blogging network. So it was basically a lot of students, uh, blogging, writing a blog post and yeah. then we'd just post it. And then, you know, it would be shared around the, a lot of the college students and it was doing quite well, actually. But once like exams started, none of the articles came out because nobody was writing. Uh, the traffic dropped and we're like, okay, this is probably not going to work. It's not sustainable. And then so, you know, even back then we decided to like, all right, let's, let's pivot and do something else. Uh, but that was my first ever uh, thing. Right. So user-generated content this time. Yeah. User-generated content. College students. So, so you're doing this in the U.S. and then maybe it start from your campus and then it would naturally recruit more people to write. Your friends would invite each other, things like that. And people were trying to build a portfolio for themselves, right? So we try to make it so like as if you're writing for an important newspaper or something. But essentially what it was is just to 
you know, just, just to get a lot of content. And I was trying to figure out how to work um, those Google ads to, to make uh, or AdSense, I think, right? Oh, to make yeah, sure yeah. that we kept getting paid for every view. But then, um, yeah, we didn't know how to really do it. So for me, it was just a learning experience at the end of the day. Was this your last uh, college startup or did you start another one? <laughs> no. So, you know, after that, not long after that, I had you know, decided to drop out of grad school at that time. And then just oh, really? figured I wanted to... Yeah, after... After that, I wanted to go back to Indonesia and get some experience uh, working uh, just to see what the other side is, right? Just to learn from other you know, business leaders or just being mentored by somebody. It's just like a young kid trying to figure out things. And then I ended up moving back to Indonesia and then you know, building an app. And then that's where my you know, app development journey sort of started. So you dropped out of grad school. Like, What made you actually want to drop out? I'm sure you didn't just wake up one day and say like, okay, I'm going to drop out of grad school today. Was there any like, tipping point? I think like, you know, at that time, I was just going through like a, a bit of a, a, a depressive state, I would say, like, uh, you know, this is gonna sound corny now, but I had like broken up uh, with my first ever girlfriend. And I was so heartbroken that I decided like, you know, if I stay here, I'm, it's gonna be so toxic, you know, I need a new fresh start. So, you know, by like the end of December, I decided to like, that's it, I'm gonna, it's gonna be a new year, you know, I don't know, I got so much <laughs> New year, new me. Yeah, new year, new me. And then I was like, look, you know, I can put my studies on hold. They give me like seven years to finish it. So I can oh, wow. you know, technically drop out for like a semester or two and then come back <laughs> and continue it if I wanted to. But then by the time I moved to Indonesia, you know, I, I was having uh, so much fun, like working and meeting people. You know, it was just just an exciting time. And then I ended up dating a girl that ended up becoming my wife. So I never ended up finishing my grad school studies. Yeah. So secret blessing in disguise. <laughs> yeah, secret blessing in disguise. Yeah, for sure. I was going to ask you why, um, like why you didn't go back to the US, but I think that explains everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it's pretty common for people, you know, to stay in the US after graduating, right? Or like go back to their home country, work a few years and they go back to the US eventually. At least I've been seeing that pattern in my generation. But now I think the, the story has told itself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, I think... I read a bit about you and then I saw that you did build another app when you came back to Indonesia. I think you mentioned that and you said it was a BlackBerry app. Yeah. And so, how did it work? <laughs> you know, honestly, at that time, you know, I, I was working for a stockbroker and then they wanted to build an online trading app on the BlackBerry. And then so, you know, we, we sort of put that into motion. We built the app, but then we realized nobody wanted to download this because at that time, um, in Indonesia, a lot of times when people are trying to trade stuff, they would call their broker. They would just like, you know, call what's the price of this and then execute the order on a phone over, you know, a phone call. And then so when we built the app, we realized like, you know, we need to figure out a way to make people download this. And then so I don't know why I thought about this back then, but I was like, let's make this into like a trading app that James Bond would have in his pocket or something like that. And then we ended up like um, adding everything from like, uh, you know, a restaurant directory the gym schedule for like when you know the next spinning class starts in jakarta what else did we put in there we put in of course the stock prices we had like a news aggregator and then somewhere along the line we decided let's build a twitter client just because we can and it'll say like you know uh tweeted from bill ricardo and so we thought that was pretty cool and we, we we had built all this stuff and then we had you know given it to a few friends to try it out you know tell me where the bugs are you know because at that time, I, I still felt like, oh, the UX sucks. I need, I need to yeah. get some feedback. 
And then, yeah, you know, some beta testers. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, just share it to some friends or something, right? And then, I don't know, Amanda, were you using the Blackberry back then? Or I remember my mom had a Blackberry and I really wanted one and she never bought me one because she was like, this is too advanced for you. <laughs> <laughs> so there's this feature, they, they, it was like the, the, the BBM blast, right? So you'd like, you know, have a message and then you can blast it to everybody in your contact list. And then, oh, wow, so what okay. happened? You know, we had shared, you know, uh, our little message, and people had forwarded it. And then, I remember, like, you know, by the late, like, um, like I think, like late night, seven, eight p.m., our server crashed, and we were like oh. wondering, like, what's going on? And then we checked the database. There's like five thousand BlackBerry pins on the server. Like, how did we get that far? So I guess we accidentally launched the app in a way, and we weren't prepared because we didn't have like auto scaling, all those cool yeah. things that we sort of expect of startups nowadays. Uh, we didn't set up any of that. So we just died. <laughs> the server yeah. died. And so the, the next like day, 5,000 users out, at 5,000. Yeah. And, and we were already confused, like, you know, what, what's going on, right? You know, I, I thought it was just me and like a group of friends. Yeah. Um, and probably like my aunts and uncles. Anyway, just, just try it out. Right. Give me feedback. Like friends so and family. <laughs> yeah. So, so for a while, it was just like, oh gosh, it was not the best way to launch something, but it was sort of cool. You know, we had an app that was barely working, but then we also had, you know, the local newspaper and all these folks trying to reach out, like, who is this app? Who, who made it? You know, and you know, yeah. why, why'd you make it? And so we're sort of like, I guess we have to ride the wave, but the app doesn't really work. So yeah. while the app was sort of uh, going on, you know, we had to just fix things in the background and then... Gosh, there's just so many things that we now take for granted that we couldn't do back then. For example, we had to maintain multiple versions of the app because not a lot of people actually click the update button. So we oh. had to like, you know, nowadays it's sort of like you, you launch the auto updates, app and right? Auto updates, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, back then it, it wasn't anything like that. And so we had to figure out how do we have like multiple versions still running uh, as we introduce new versions. So it was such a, a pain in the butt, but it was fun. But what did that look like? I mean, you get 5,000 users in a matter of hours. I mean, did you guys celebrate or did you guys go into panic mode? Because the server shut down. <laughs> and I don't know if you guys knew how to fix it. I don't know what state technology was in back then. Uh, I'm not a, an engineer myself, so I'm curious. <laughs> oh, I mean, like we did the normal thing that everybody would try to do, which is like turn the server off and turn it back on. And then it would just continue to die again. Oh. <laughs> but then, you know, we, we, so we had to figure out how to scale it. Yeah, I mean, we we were happy. I mean, like we were celebrating and a bit celebrating, but panicking, you know, at the same time. But it was memorable because, like, I never experienced anything like that. To suddenly have like the local like news agency come in with a video crew to our office uh, to sort of interview us, you know, and this is only like a week after we accidentally launched. So it was an exciting time. You know, I, I got into all these cool magazines and we didn't plan for any of this. We didn't have a marketing budget. You know, we didn't have a marketing team. Yeah. And so over time, actually, the app became known as this lifestyle app versus the BlackBerry trade stock trading app. And so our, our investors weren't so happy either. But we had it, I think, at its peak, like 170-ish thousand users yeah. without any marketing budget. And so it was purely BlackBerry Messenger blasts and then... You know, a lot of people using it. We didn't know how to monetize it either. Yeah. Because back then, you know, a lot of people were just like, uh, we'll put, you know, give you some money to have it, you know, on this spot for an X amount of days. But then it didn't really matter if you had like you know, two users or, you know, 50,000 users. Because, you know, that, that model wasn't really developed yet uh, in yeah. Asia. So it was just a fun learning experience. It was too early for its time, I think. And then we quickly killed it off uh, just because we couldn't make a lot of money on it. 
I mean, it sounds like the OG super app before any super apps came up. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I, yeah, everything. I, I, I yeah, it was it was too early. Um, there was no VCs back then either. I remember like around the same time there was uh, the East Ventures guys. Actually, before uh, Wilson started East Ventures, he had his own app that did similar things. Oh, yeah, and then so my at app the same time period. App. Yeah, and then we became friends that way. It's like, oh, you're that oh. guy. And then so, my not long after, <laughs> <laughs> so he started East Ventures, which is now, you know, even better, even cooler, right? So I think it was just an interesting time. You know, I think I joke with uh, Wilson once in a while, you know, if my app didn't kill your app, maybe there's no East Ventures. Ha ha ha. Yeah. But then, you know, we have those types of jokes there, but, you know, when we meet each other. But you mentioned you had investors, but you said there were no VCs back then. So who invested in your very early super app? app? Yeah. It was basically like the, you know, I wouldn't say investors. I would say like they were the the company that was doing the stock trading app. Uh, sorry, the, the, oh. they were a broker, stock broker. And they, they basically invested money into developing an app. Yeah. And then sort of gave me freedom. Got it. And they were like the sole investor. Yeah. They were the sole investor. Yeah. I understand now why they wouldn't be so happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it was fun. Uh, you know, definitely an experience. And what was it called? It was called Domicado. And does that mean anything in Indonesian? Does it mean like trade stocks easy? I, I don't know. <laughs> no, no, no. It just it was sort of like this like a childhood game that, and I thought the name was quite catchy. And then we we found that we we can register the dot com, so we just you know named the app after that, not thinking that it would get that far anyway. Yeah. So I right. thought it was something playful and fun. Uh, that's they what just we have a name. It. Yeah, have a name, uh, and people can easily you know remember it because it's a childhood. Yeah. Like lingo thing, yeah. And like, how did you decide to wind it down? Like, was there were there lots of discussions, or was it something very difficult to to think about? Because you guys got a bit popular, right, for such an early win, and then I think it's hard to let anything go. Yeah. No. Like, how do you know when to give up and then when to when to find another way to monetize? <laughs> so it's really interesting because, like, I look back at that time and I what I really tell myself and what did I learn from that? It was basically, you know. It's important to have the right advisors or the right people talk to you about the business that you want to build. And so at that time, the, the, the people that I had surrounding me, they, you know, there was not a lot of tech, you know, people that had that perspective of, you know, grow it first, monetize it later. You know, back then, a lot of the, the business leaders were sort of very conventional business leaders. You know, what's the how much money can you make? How much money does it cost to run? It's very conventional thinking, right? It's not thinking that moonshot. A leapfrog type of thing where you just kind of like grow the user base and then make it valuable, yeah. you know, and monetize down the road. So I re- remember thinking about that, like, gosh, you know, it was, it was a good time for me to learn about discernment, trying to figure out like, you know, who do you really listen to? Like who, you know, and if you just take everybody's advice at face value, it's sort of like, it might not even get it any further, right? There was a time when they were saying, kill all the other features that doesn't have to do with the stock trading app. And then that would have been really the, the the wrong advice, right? Because it would kill what users sort of came for. And just having users on the app, checking it all the time is already very valuable in itself. But not a lot of people had that perspective, especially back then. Uh, we decided to wind it down at the end of the day, just because the investors or you know, the people that funded it were saying like, look, it's, it's costing us too much money. And by the way, it's too much money back then was only a few thousand dollars a month. Yeah. Yeah, and, and then you know, for us, and we weren't making any money or anything significant money, and they're saying like, you know, it's, it might not be the right target customers and all these different things. So let's just quickly get rid of it. And it, it was such a <laughs> you know, I was, I was pretty sad about it. 
but I figured like, yeah, I guess that's, you know, if, if these business people know what they're doing, they've already built an empire. Maybe I should listen to them. You know, what do yeah. I have college? Day? So yeah, killed it. How old were yeah. you at the time? Like maybe 2022? Yeah, 22. Exactly. Mm. So what was it like to actually build a setup in Indonesia back then? I think you touched touched a bit on that. Like there were not a lot of people that you could really look up to, even though it's, a, I guess, a very different sort of business, right? It's a very tech business, totally different platforms, totally different way of building. So what were the biggest like challenges like building a startup back then in Indonesia? Plus you were so young. I guess you weren't really like a savvy business person, right? At the time, you're still learning as you were going. Yeah, again, it was like really, you know, there's not a lot of resources really, right? So I think like you would have this idea of like, oh, it might work in the US. It's not going to work in this part of the world. And then so, you know, we, we just don't have the resources like we have today. You know, it's like everybody and like you just go to YouTube and find all these yeah. cool stories. There's all these like YC videos you could watch. It's just so different back then. And it was because of the limitations of, you know, having the right people that had, you know, to know what to do or give you the right advice. Yeah, it, it, it crumbled pretty quickly. And that's the, why it's so important to get really good advisors surrounding you when you're building like startups. Yeah. Right? You've got to have the right people with the right mindset to sort of, you know, help you grow and look at things in different perspectives. Who are the most like helpful people in your journey? Was it sort of different people throughout every stage um, or throughout every type of business that you had? Or were there people who were actually constant um, like throughout the years, throughout the ventures and throughout the different stages? So I have to say like, you know, there is this not long after uh, Domicado had to shut down that app. There was this guy that flew into Indonesia that wanted to start a uh, VC firm, and it was you know these group of guys from the U.S. Sovereigns Capital, and it was the guy Henry Kaster that actually yeah. uh, you know where I did the podcast uh, prior with the uh, faith driven entrepreneur. So he was actually the guy that sort of gave me that other perspective about like you know how do you you know, build a company because at that point he had already built a company, you know, sold it and went IPO in the US and NASDAQ. So, you know, he had a, a breadth of experience. And then so I had to really, uh, you know, have him really tell me like, what about like the first types of hires that I do? You know, what do I have to do here? Like, who do I listen to? You know, and a lot of times it's a lot, you know, getting advice from him along the way, even though it was sort of not too easy to reach out to him, it would be emails or uh, just like, you know, when he's in town and, you know, probably once every other year. So it wasn't as easy, but then I think like it sort of set me on the right path, right? To think about like not just building an app for profit, but also like, you know, purposefully building things, looking at things differently, really. What are some of the early mistakes that you made? Because I think for me, like as I build like my own startup, I think that I had similar challenges. Like how do you pick the right person as your first hire? How do you even think about XYZ things? What are some of like the early mistakes that you made? Oh gosh, uh, I feel like I made so many mistakes. Can't keep track. But then, <laughs> you know, I think looking back, like, um, and I, I feel like I've been doing startups since two thousand and eight. Uh, and looking back, I think like, you know, it's really number one is really not taking people for granted. I think like there's a lot of people that you know, have crossed paths, and then you know, there's times that I've been, you know, as an early you know, founder that was probably like quite emotional in the beginning. Like I did things like, you know, get mad at people like, you know, really badly and then said things that, you know, that hurtful. But and looking back, at, I, I really regret those things. Right. And I think like maintaining a good relationship with like, you know, the people that work for you, sort of seeing them not as like tools, but as like, you know, co-creators together, building things together, 
and just like everybody's sort of on a on a journey, right? And just really appreciating their time that they give to you. I think those are comes back to me as being the most important, the relationships. Because now when I look back, a lot of the coworkers that I had, you know, they've built successful apps, they've built successful companies as well. And it's pretty crazy to sort of think like, wow, we've sort of all started in that, you know, small little apartment, all crammed up together, working late nights, trying to build something that works. And I look back and it's really about the people, right? Yeah. The first 10 hires is so crucial about building the next cult, about building the culture in your company. It's going to determine who you're going to continue to, you know, hire next, right? Especially nowadays with like, you know, the, the Gen Z millennials before they sort of uh, want to work at your company, they'll look at who's working there already, right? They go through LinkedIn, yeah. they'll, they'll check everything. And I think like it's, it's so important exactly why you need to figure out a culture first, right? And that's going to really, you know, help your company grow. The people you empower, you know, the people that you give trust to, all, all these different things. But if there was like a single, like big learning lesson, I think it's not investing enough into uh, people. And I, and I remind myself all the time about that. And so now I think I'm doing a much, much, much uh, better job at that piece. I think like I did a bit of research on like Hacktivate, what you're building now, the coding bootcamp. And I think you are investing a lot into people there because like while it looks like a coding bootcamp, I saw that you have a lot of work on the personal side. I think you employ a lot of psychologists. I also listened to another podcast where you mentioned that you tried to teach them yoga at some point. So is that one way you feel like you're sort of investing in people? Or is that more of another approach? Like maybe how you view some people should be learning about coding and how they should balance certain things? No, I think like, you know, absolutely. Like in terms of, you know, for us at Hacktivate, like it's so awesome that we get to play that small part in somebody's life to see from them being so vulnerable, you know, from going to that admissions interview and not feeling so confident about their career to seeing them graduate and then thrive and then, you know, be successful at their job. I think that's so awesome. And then, you know, I, I keep getting today like LinkedIn messages from a bunch of different students, you know, to thank me about like introducing all those key pivotal moments, right, in their learning journey, you know, from engineering empathy, helping them, you know, write a letter to their future self, for example, and then, you know, putting it into an envelope and only opening it after several years later. You know, all these different things sort of really help people sort of, I don't know, I like... It sort of helped put them on, on a path, I would say, that helped them really grow at the end of the day. You know, how do we deal with adversity? How do we, you know, think under pressure? How do you talk to your inner critic? All these different concepts, I think, were very helpful in building a coding bootcamp. In terms of the people that we work together with, I think there's a lot of importance today to really empower people, right? You know, there's times like when I was a leader in some of my earlier startups that I was a micromanager. I'd like try to get every stinking detail correct, right? You know, a pixel perfect, make sure like the right... The colors, even the colors, colors things yeah, like that. CSS has to be like, you know, the, the, <laughs> the curve of like, you know, some of the squares, things like that. I'd go pretty crazy about that. And, and what ended up happening was that there was a culture of like, you know, okay, uh, let's build it. But then after that, let's have Ronald review it first, right? And I became a bottleneck for my own thing that I was trying to build, right? So I, I learned really quickly, like, you know, we've got to really help other people make a lot of mistakes so that they learn, right? And so nowadays, it's really about, you know, how can I empower others to really make those decisions so that I don't become a bottleneck, right? And so eventually, that's what I sort of learned about scaling an organization. It's really about empowering your leaders so that they can also empower their leaders too. And then, you know, after that, the, the organization will move in ways that 
when I look back, it's like, wow, I can't believe we pulled that off, right? And I didn't even initiate that whole thing. But the, sort of with the culmination of everybody making decisions that are, you know, sort of going to the right direction, as long as we can sort of say like, this is the end goal that we're trying to achieve. Like there's many ways to get there. And, and then, you know, allowing people to sort of figure out what's the best way to get there. I think it's just so awesome to see now. How did you become, I guess, like, how did you go from being like a micromanager to somebody who started like empowering his teams? Like, did that change when you started working as like a CTO in another company? Or did that just change um, throughout your entrepreneurial journey as you founded more startups? Like, when did you sort of change your approach and why? Yeah, no, it, it really came down to, you know, the mentors and the advisors that I had surrounding me at that point, right? It's really being like, brave enough to meet people and like just asking that, that type of question, you know, like what worked for you and what didn't work for you and what advice do you have for me? If you could talk to yourself 10 years ago type of questions, right? And, uh, and that became uh, really, you know, the quickest way to sort of learn from other people's own mistakes as well. And then seeing it from their vantage point, right? Which, you know, for me, maybe I'm looking from like back then, like a 20 year old is like, oh, okay, that sounds pretty rad, you know, but let's try it. And then and sort of to see the fruits of, uh, of doing things differently that way. I think it was just experimenting and sort of realizing like, okay, this is a better approach. And I think this is a more scalable approach. And it makes sense if I'm the bottleneck and if I'm like out sick for two weeks that nothing gets done, that doesn't sound like a good company or a company that would be investable. Yeah. And I think you also mentioned like with Hacktivate, uh, like vulnerability is important being with your your students at that time and helping them sort of speak to their own inner critic and deal with that. Were those challenges that you had on your own? because I think there are lots of coding bootcamps there all over the world, but not a lot of people have the same approach as you guys um, with this aspect, the personal and more vulnerable side. So I've always had this like uh, inkling and even like talking. So, so maybe even a step back, right? So Hacktivate itself uh, was actually inspired by another business called Dev Bootcamp. And they were the first coding bootcamps to ever uh, start. You know, they, they invented this whole thing, right? And, you know, as the industry sort of grew, you know, competitors started popping up and then their focus sort of slowly changed. But what was exciting for me is that I was able to go to Dev Bootcamp to sort of learn from the original team. Um, meaning like, you know, I became a student, just experienced the whole thing. Yeah. And then I had the opportunity to sort of meet with the founders and sort of understand their thinking when they built all this. And it all started with uh, Dev Bootcamp, you know, the original founders of the coding bootcamp space, you know, and sort of seeing how they did it and then their intentions and their sort of seeing their ideas and what they wanted to build, right? And so a lot of that came from there. You know, they had a big thing about like engineering empathy. How do we you know, create uh, people that are smart, but also relatable, right? Not just like, you know, coders that are, you know, so hard, hard to difficult to talk with and things like that. And so they had this whole thing about, you know, you have to have approach learning with a lot of empathy because what makes great students great are really great teachers that can empathize with the students as they go through the difficult parts of the learning journey. And that just clicked for me. You know, it was sort of like the idea that, you know, we're not going to have these just video-based learning courses where people just watch videos and expect them to become job-ready workers in the future. Like it requires a lot of empathy. It requires a lot of peer-to-peer -peer learning as well, meaning like from your peers, you know, as you're going through something really difficult and trying to solve things together in a group project. And that's when the real learning really happens. And so I took a lot of the values that they had built out from there. Over time, uh, Dev Bootcamp was acquired by Kaplan. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the things that made them really great slowly disappeared, right? Yeah. Like their, 
the, the, the coaching or the counselors they would have on the team, they would be replaced by apps, right? And so, you know, slowly and slowly, it just started not to not to work. And eventually they ended up closing down uh, the business. But then, you know, to sort of see it from an outsider's perspective and knowing like, okay, this is something awesome. And this needs to be something that can happen out here in Indonesia. It's sort of the, the breeding ground of why all of this started, really. I think, you know, a lot of people say entrepreneurship is such a lonely journey. And it's, I think, all the more hard in an environment where the market's very early. So Indonesia is very early at at the time, and you're also very young. So what were the unseen challenges for you on the personal side? Yeah, no, I think like, there was times where I'd really beat myself up when I didn't get what I wanted. uh, In terms of like, you know, why aren't things working? Why are things always crashing? Like, did I hire the wrong team? You know, all, all these things that, that end up becoming like a, a downward spiral of just things going wrong. I think what really helped me, a big part of it is my faith. You know, I really, I think an entrepreneur's journey really helped me be closer uh, to uh, my faith, right? And, um, and sort of how I can now surrender things when things are just so difficult. But another thing that really helped me was actually journaling. And I think that's probably one of the best overseen things as well. Journaling sort of helped me pour out everything in my head and slow down. And I I make sure it's a paper journal. Uh, So it forces me to slow down and write things out as frustrated as I would be. Sometimes it would be like 2 a.m. journals, 3 a.m. journals where I couldn't sleep because I'm like stressed about something or beating up myself about something else. And sort of like being able to pour that out and sort of like thinking about, you know what, we'll revisit this in the future or like, let me just pour it out so I can, you know, and basically after I finished writing it, I can sleep basically. Yeah. It helped me sort of like take it out of my head and put in a piece of paper and go to sleep. Sometimes I don't read the journal again, but then even just that piece alone really helped me. And then, you know, it, in my own like uh, journey of, you know, getting to where my faith comes into play, it's really awesome to sort of go back to journals, like maybe a few years back and sort of see like, oh, you know, when this sort of happened, you know, I really believe that it was meant for something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was a good thing that it went that way. But at that time, I couldn't see it, Yeah, you know, that way. Because I, I, I wanted something so badly that I couldn't see any other possible, you know, good outcome if it wasn't that path. But it turns out that, you know, some certain things are blessings in disguise and we just don't see it. And only after we're, you know, past several years down the road, we look back and like, wow, it was actually, you know, a blessing. Yeah. So I, I sort of see it that way. But man, it's, there's so many things to be insecure about, Amanda. Like, you know, here I am becoming like a tech entrepreneur. I've never raised a Series A in my life, 14 years. I mean, sometimes I, I look at all these like, you know, younger entrepreneurs like, wow, they're so accomplished. They've already raised their Series A, Series B, you know, from all these you know, crazy cool investors. You know, how come I'm not there yet? And then I go to this whole comparison game and, oh gosh, it can get so toxic, right? And it, it, that's why it's so important to have like really good, you know, advisors and people that surround you and sort of can tell you to look at things in different perspectives. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that's what I can say about that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like now with all of the investors coming to Southeast Asia as well, I think in the past few years, you've had startups that became a unicorn in just like less than five years. Right. And they're way, way younger than you. And I think it's really tough, especially it's like being in the market for so long because people also look up to you, right? Do you feel like when people ask you for advice, does that also open you up to I guess, times of insecurity as well. No, absolutely. I think like, you know, the, the, the way I'm able to 
sort of do things now is sort of help people go through that uh, difficult time of like when they're insecure about, you know, the same things I might have gone through before, right? You know, not getting the investor that I wanted or basically getting a term sheet pulled or, you know, all these different things that sort of like put my identity as like a CEO that has raised X amount of dollars, right? And it's not the right perspective, right? It's, yeah. it's really all these vanity metrics of like, you know, why am I not in like the Forbes list or something like that? You know, all, all, all these different things that actually are things that don't really matter. And sometimes it adds so much stress uh, to a founder, right? Whereas there are so many, you know, with a different perspective, you can sort of see like they're actually doing something really awesome and changing the world in their, you know, unique way. Yeah. But then sometimes, you know, the perspective is just not in the right place. So I find myself becoming that, you know, as, especially now as, as an investor as well, I get to sort of, you know, work with a lot of founders, sort of helping them align to what should be the things that are important. You know, how do we prioritize the right things? How do we sort of, you know, overcome this like anxiety, right? And things like that. How do you measure success now? Or what do you say matters to you now? Like looking back at the business and how the landscape has changed and how that's affected you sort of personally. You know, nowadays, like this is, I don't know if this is, uh, if this is appropriate, but it's going to be a, a very faith-based answer for me, right? Because I, I really now take my faith so seriously. And for me, like that success metric is really knowing where God wants me to be and mm-hmm. being right there. Uh, and for me, that just gives me so much peace, right? You know, over the pandemic, I had learned things like, what does surrender look like? Because like, I really believe that there's a higher power that's, you know, over that's taking care of us, looking out for us. And, you know, what, what does surrender look like? And so when I can sort of go through anxiety and sort of be able to surrender those things to a higher power, it, it just takes away all the burden for me. And it helps me get through the day, right? Or get through, you know, that situation. But yeah, for me, success is really knowing where uh, God wants me to be and being right there. And just, you know, doing work in a way that's blessing other people. You know, I find so much satisfaction in what I do now. It's not really about the profits anymore. It's really about seeing people's lives really get changed through an opportunity that we're able to build out, make it simpler for people to get an education, pay for an education, be successful in their jobs and just being a small part in all that. Do you think that your struggles in your entrepreneurial journey sort of brought you closer to your faith or do you think you've always been this faithful? I think the journey of becoming an entrepreneur really helps you become closer to God because being an entrepreneur, a lot of times is really working with a lot of unknown, like not knowing what the future holds, not knowing, you know, what your customers will think or your, what your, you know, partners would think. And all these things can just go unknown in unknown ways. Right. And, and so faith has sort of helped me surrender all the anxiety and helped me keep going. I think that was the probably the most important part for me throughout the journeys. And like, it's also a very personal journey on your end. Are there ways that you felt like entrepreneurship really changed you as a person? I know it's like, there's a lot of growing up there like from 22 up until now, but I think there are also sort of pivotal moments where you feel like, I guess like entrepreneurship changed you and you look back. Do you think there are certain aspects about yourself that were influenced uh, by your journey? Like I agree means like maybe there was a very pivotal moment or maybe there was a really tough experience you know a lot of times like becoming an entrepreneur you know like you know you get all these cool articles written about you and then sometimes you make that as the identity of like oh ronald the entrepreneur right and i think it was a really hard learning journey for me to unlearn all that right you know today i look at myself like you know ronald you know child of god 
And then really that's it. That's probably the most important thing for me. It's not about like the flashy articles and all these, you know, wonderful things that, you know, that the press can write about you and just thinking that, you know, or, or public perception, what people on Reddit think about you, you know, all these different things you can, a lot of times, like um, our identity can be at the wrong place. And, and that really stressed me out a lot. Very, very much so like, you know, oh, I guess I'm not a successful entrepreneur if I'm not this or if I'm not that. And yeah, it just takes it into the wrong place, I think. I think you're absolutely right. There were times like for me, I think earlier in like my journey. So I started basketball like a little over a year ago. I think around the sixth month, I was starting to get to that point where it wasn't so easy to get a lot of new new users, right? Like obviously when you're just starting, it's easy to get 300% week on week growth. Like that's really easy. But there was a time where it was really hard for me and I had to sort of change my approach and how do I get more readers? How do I get more subscribers? And there was this like one month where I felt like if the numbers were going down, I was having a terrible day. And if there was this one day where I got like five more subscribers than the last day or 10 more, it would be like the best day ever. It was like constant up and downs based on like my growth metrics. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I think like, you know, I'm sure that kept you up at night thinking like, what can I do better? What can I do now? What can I do this very moment? Yeah. You know, and whereas sometimes the best thing you can do is just go to sleep and we'll deal with it tomorrow. No, absolutely. I think I think it's a journey. And then I think you know, at the end of the day, you'll get, you know, learn something out of it, right? You know, you know how that famous saying, experience is what you get when you didn't get what you wanted. Yeah. And then, you know, this is a, definitely an experience for you. And you're going to be talking about those days when I started this startup, right? <laughs> and that and that's what's going to make it so awesome, right? It's this season where there's so many things we can just learn from just being at where we are at the moment and just taking time to reflect. on. Yeah. I think the reason I asked you so many questions, like what was your experience like, especially because you were young, is because I feel like it's also very tough when you're young. Like for me, I realized that, you know, coming right out of school, I think for you, you came right from college, being like an entrepreneur sort of forces you to go through this, I guess, point where you have to tell yourself, okay, I have to stop letting what everybody else thinks affect me. I have to stop letting the numbers affect me. When you're coming from a context like school, it's like a place where everybody's opinions matter so much, right? <laughs> but when you go through like, I think that journey of like, I think working for a long time before you start your own company, you sort of learn how to not let public perception, your coworkers' perceptions, other people's perceptions affect you. And I feel like it's such an underrated part of like what you should learn as a young entrepreneur. Because I think now there's such a like a big hype around, okay, you should start a startup, you should start a business. But I think it, it's true. It is infinitely harder when you're young as well. And would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. No, I think like a lot of times what the world sort of puts out there, you know, becoming a startup, you know, it looks so awesome, right? But nobody really talks about the anxiety that goes through becoming a startup, the, the sleep that you lose uh, about being a, an entrepreneur, you know, the people that leave your business or just being into in, in positions where you might not be able to have enough money to pay your employees, right? You know, those are the parts that are not as highlighted as like the glamorous things on getting covered by TechCrunch or, you know, invested by all these great VCs and all these different things. I think it's so important that, you know, when somebody decides to, you know, jump in this journey, that they also know that there's a lot of other important things that that's worth considering. Since you like run a coding bootcamp, are there a, a, any like people who graduate from the course and, who speak to you and say like, hey, maybe I want to start my own startup. Have you ever had that kind of experience? And like, what kind of conversation did you have? Oh, all the time, actually. Oh, really? You know, and then people sort of, you know, in, in a way, like give their like, you know, have a look at this business plan and sort of like 
think as if I have a crystal ball that tells the future. Well, yeah, know, like right? I'm going to be successful or I'm not going to be successful based on what my boss says or what Ron says. <laughs> yeah. And then again, like, you know, always the question I ask is like, you know, how comfortable are you with the unknown or like, because a lot of people need processes. A lot of people feel good when there's like, oh, you know, I can step-by-step do it this way, right? But yeah. then a lot of times with entrepreneurship, it's sort of like, you have to figure it out. You run experiments, you sort of read the numbers, you see if it's working or not, you double down or you, you pivot. And a lot of times, you know, that brings so much anxiety to people. And then yeah. when they're unable to deal with that anxiety, it's sort of like, you know, makes them unable to move. And then suddenly, you know, it was a lot from the whole thing, right? Or it's just really hard. But a lot of times, you know, students do come, right? And especially like, you know, or early graduate, they have this like, you know, wonderful idea, you know, uh, that they want to do all these things. And I just tell them like, yeah, go ahead and do it. You know, you'll learn something from it. Um, even if it, if, if it succeeds, you know, awesome, great. But yeah. if it doesn't succeed, you know, don't beat yourself up. Cause like, there's just so many learnings that you can come out that can come out from all that. It's probably the most underrated, you know, thing that people need to know. Cause I think like an idea, I think there are lots of great ideas, right. But it's also really a lot of asking yourself, are you ready? I guess, personally for the entrepreneurial journey, like, are you ready to face the fact that maybe one day you'll wake up and you realize like, Hey, it's not working. And then maybe you have your own expenses. You have a like a family to feed or you have all of these other things that are factored into that. Yeah, absolutely. Has it sort of been hard for you also to sort of run a business, especially as Indonesia's startup landscape changed and also as your personal life changed? I mean, I think you're a father as well. And like you, you have to juggle so many things. A rapid change in your business with the startup landscape plus COVID and plus, you know, you have your own, you know, personal life. How has it been like, I mean, juggling all of that? Yeah, I would definitely say like the amount of risk taking that happens sort of changes over time, right? Like, you know, as a mm-hmm. as an early 20 year old, you know, I didn't really have so many responsibilities of you know, thinking about kids or like, you know, thinking like, okay, I'm going to move to this country for this many months and try to work there or you know, the, the responsibilities are not as overly big or like, you know, not going to lock you down. But nowadays, like with, for me, you know, I have two kids now, you know, I, I do, you know, think about like, okay, you know, I want to end my meetings earlier so I can spend time with my kids. I make sure like I block out my calendar that way. I don't suddenly, you know, try to go to every networking event uh, yeah. that happens on a weekday and go drinking every day. Like it, those are things that I end up just having to uh, say no to so I can say yes to other uh, things that I find more important. Yeah, I think things like that. And I guess like before we close, there's this one question that I want to ask. And this is something I'll be asking everybody uh, for every One More Scoop podcast, which is outside of work, what's one thing you want to accomplish with your personal life? And this doesn't have to be something that happens next week or by the end of the year, but what's one thing you do want to accomplish with your personal life? Gosh, that's a big one. Hold on, let me think. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I just, looking back, like, you know, I, I just think that there's, things that I used to think to be so important Mm -hmm. that are not so important anymore. Like, you know, I used to think that I want to become like a gazillionaire or like raise a, you know, tons of money. But then now I just realized that I just want to be in a happy place where I can, um, you know, make sure that my uh, kids grow up in a happy environment, you know, and just honestly, I just want to be in a place where I can have, uh, you know, a lot of peace, really. I think, I know it's probably not the, the, the answer that, most people are thinking about but you know i think having just so much peace is just such a underrated thing like i want to be able to sleep well at night i Mm want to be able to know that i'm doing the right things that's making a difference 
And it, for me, it really comes down to that, you know, just really enjoying where I am at this moment in the season and just taking it a day at a time. Mm-hmm. I don't have, you know, one super big thing I want to accomplish anymore. I feel like, you know, I, I'm just really enjoying uh, going through, you know, every season a day at a time. So I think like going back to like your previous points, like you don't want to go to sleep and then like realize you can't fall asleep and you have to journal because you're thinking of so many things. And like, you don't want to worry about like, oh, um, am I running out of runaway? Are the people I work with happy with me? Or am I doing the right thing? Or are the, the students not not happy with the course? Is that what you mean? Like not having those kinds of thoughts anymore? Well, I'm sure like you know, those types of thoughts will always come by, right? But I think like, you know, I don't want to be in a position where it's like I can't send my kids to school because I sort of go through all of my personal runway. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I don't want to be in a position where I have to do something that will you know, put me in a, in, a, in a place where I don't want to be basically, right? You know, it's taking yeah. more calculated risks nowadays and really just, you know, optimizing for that peace part, right? And like, I guess like because of that, is there any like regret on your end? Like, for example, is there something that you wanted to change? And actually, no, let me like take out that question. I'm just thinking of like how to, to close this properly. <laughs> no, I definitely like, you know, you know, actually one thing that really like, um, that sort of, you know, puts me in a state where I'm like overthinking is like, uh, I go through this seasons of like going just what if this, what if that, I should have done this, I should have done that. Mm-hmm. And sort of thinking like, what are all the alternate paths that I could have gone to if I made that decision back then, right? But the thing is, there's nothing I can do about it. I mean, at, you know, meaning like, yeah, maybe those, those seasons at the time have already changed, the opportunities might be different now. And so mm-hmm. if we think about the past too much where it ends up, coming like a lot of regrets it's hard to move forward sometimes but you know i'm sure that there's always lessons that we can always think about like okay maybe i should have done this better next time and that's productive yeah but then when it comes time to like oh i should have you know taken this money from this investor even though it was sort of like this and that it's mm-hmm. not really going to help us get uh too far i think yeah so not having those negative what ifs is like what peace looks like to you yeah i think so well, thank you so much for your time, Ron. I actually really enjoyed this <laughs> conversation. <laughs> thank you so much, Ron. This is fun. Yeah.